Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Good morning. All right, this time we're going to release our children for Children's Church. So ages three years old through fifth grade are invited to head that way. They're learning about the Psalms over there, so they're going to head there. Uh, it's good to be together this morning, always good to worship together. It was beautiful with everybody's voices and, and just being here for, for worship together today, so we're glad that you're here. Uh, the parables that, that were told in that video uh, first of all, I'm grateful that um, 
for Rod for narrating that video for us and for Terry for his artistic talents in illustrating those stories for us. And so when I asked Terry about it, he, he did it. He, and I said, I'm going to tell people who did it. He said, well, wait, let's see how it turns out before, I, before you tell people who did it. And so I said, it'll be fine. It'll be great. So uh, he was comfortable enough to let me share with you that he was the one who did it. So <laughs> thank you, Terry and Rod, for, for lending your talents to, uh, to read and, and to illustrate those stories with us today. Uh, those stories uh, are told in succession in Luke 15, and that's where we're going to be today. Uh, if you want to turn there, we're going to be looking at a couple more pieces of that chapter, but, but we're not going to read the entirety of those stories again because they were just read for us uh, and, and illustrated for us in that video. Uh, but before we get into that, I want to mention again that, that the parables are are challenging, and I think they should challenge each of us. Uh, that's, again, as we talked about last week, that's part of the reason that Jesus spoke in parables is because the parables contain some challenging messages. Uh, and so as we go through this series, as we go through today and, and in future lessons, uh, I, I think we're going to, hopefully, that, that we each realize that, that there are, that these stories are told in a way that should challenge each of us. And, and I say that to say, if you, if you hear one of these lessons and think, is he singling me out with something that, that like I should, the answer is no, at least not intentionally. <laughs> but if you think, is he stepping on my toes, then the answer to that is probably yes. <laughs> but because that's what I think Jesus is doing in these stories. But as I've said before, Jesus is an equal opportunity toe stepper. <laughs> and it just so happens that his his boot of choice when it comes to toe-stepping is parables. It's where he chooses to kind of push against us and challenge us and get us to re-examine some things. Uh, so I just want us to keep that in mind as we go through some of these stories. Uh, so with that said, has anyone lost or misplaced your keys or your wallet or your phone recently? Anybody? Just raise your hand if you've done that recently. Okay, shame on all of you. Because I missed the invitation to all of your I found my phone parties. <laughs> and in truth, I didn't invite you to mine either. <laughs> um, and I say that a little tongue in cheek because we've all lost to those things and none of us have thrown a big party when we've found it. But if you read these stories, uh, like, like the second story that, that was read there, it's about a woman who loses a coin. Uh, the coin that's lost is worth about a day's worth of wages. And so each time that any of us leaves our phone in a weird part of the house and can't find it for a while, like each time we finally find that phone, we find something much more valuable than this coin that this woman found. And none of us are throwing parties for that. <laughs> we may call someone if we're, like, if we're late because we couldn't find our phone or our keys and tell them we're now on our way or whatever, but we're not throwing grand parties. Uh, in Jesus' day, a hundred sheep was a lot of sheep for one flock, which meant that a shepherd with the resources to have such a large flock could easily sustain the loss of one sheep. And so a party to celebrate the finding of one out of a hundred sheep feels a little excessive. Now, some of us, some of us can relate to those stories, though, because we have people in our lives who are excessive celebrators. 
Anybody know anybody like that? Anybody have an excessive celebrator that they look for any excuse to throw a party or buy a gift? People are literally pointing at those. So <laughs> uh, if you don't have someone in your family or friend group, maybe you are that person that you, any excuse to throw a party, buy a gift, get people together, go out to a nice restaurant, you'll take it, right? Any excuse to do it. These are, these are excessive celebrators. These are the type of people who celebrate birth months, not birthdays, right? It's like, we'll just take any excuse to throw a party. Uh, and in these stories, in these stories, again, that are told in succession in Luke 15, I think we're invited to envision God as an excessive celebrator. These stories, uh, they, they, they call us to see God as something like a woman who calls her friends together to celebrate finding one coin. Uh, God is pictured as a shepherd who celebrates finding one sheep. And while the celebrations in those stories might be unexpected because of their excessiveness, the celebration in the third story I think is unexpected because even the returning son can't have imagined that this would be the response of his dad when he got back home. And so it is no less unexpected. The dad in the final story doesn't begrudgingly wel welcome his son back or, or lecture him upon his arrival. No, the son's return is simply and exclusively cause for celebration. And this son, this son has had a long way to travel to get back home. We're told that he, he left and went to a far distant country. So once you finally get to the end of your rope there and hit rock bottom and think, I, go to, I gotta go back home, even if, like, my, he says, my dad's servants are treated better than this, I'm just gonna go back and try to be a servant. He makes that decision. That's a long trip back home. And, and I imagine that if this scene were to play itself out, that he probably would have been rehearsing his speech all the way back home. As Jesus tells the story, he tells that this, this is what the son planned to say to his dad once he got back. This is his speech to his dad. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so again, I imagine that if you sort of play this self out, I envision him repeating those sentences all the way back home. Uh, it, it sort of reminds me of the time I remember when I asked uh, Ashley to marry me. We lived about three hours apart. And so I made the decision. I, I had this like speech in my head, right? But now I've got to drive three hours in the car. And so the whole time in the car, I'm like going over in my head, you know, I'm like, you know, making sure I'm going to get all the words right, going over everything I'm going to say all the way to Abilene, right? And that's three hours. And I'm just repeating it in my head. This guy's got to go from one country to another, and I just picture him all the way like, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, like just over and over and over again. So he finally arrives home. But he doesn't even make it to the house before his dad rushes out, throws his arms around him, hugs him, and kisses him. And I imagine that the impact of, of his dad's over-aggressive hug kind of throws him off balance and catches him off guard for a minute, but he's been rehearsing this speech all the way home, and so he just goes right into it. 
He goes right into his speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer, to be, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he's about to make the big request. Just let me be one of your servants. He's about to get to that point, but the dad doesn't even let him finish. The dad just cuts him off, turns to his servants, and starts giving instructions. He says, let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. And so all of these parables in Luke 15, they present God as this excessive celebrator. And we're reminded here that God's love is so expansive that he celebrates and throws parties even when it is unnecessary or unexpected. The image of God who is sort of this overbearing brute waiting for you to mess up so he can punish you for eternity doesn't exactly jive with a picture of a shepherd celebrating the safe return of one sheep, of a woman throwing a party over what seems to be a rather mundane part of life, or a dad who could scold and lecture a broken son but instead chooses to feast and to party. And so there's a pattern to these stories that is repeated in each of the tellings. Now, the third story is undoubtedly and, uh, and, and most assuredly the most detailed and longest of these narratives. But even there, the pattern remains the same. The shepherd, the woman, the father, they are all looking, searching, and waiting. And once the sheep, the coin, and the son are found, there are celebrations. And when viewed that way, I think the message of these three stories are unmistakably and undeniably about the grace and the mercy and the unrelenting love of God. These are stories about a God who embraces and a God who celebrates lavishly. These stories could easily end right there with this huge celebration with this family and be beautiful, powerful, poignant stories. And that would mean the sermon could end here and it would be a nice, short, sweet sermon and we could go home feeling good about God's grace and love and mercy. And it really wouldn't be all that challenging necessarily to us, I don't think. We could feel good about it. Not that we can't feel good about all this story once we get done, but, but you know what I mean. This is, this is a nice, upbeat, encouraging message. And I believe that Jesus' audience fully expected that to be the case, that this, this kind of trio of stories would end here. The, the, the pattern has been completed in the third story that, that Jesus began in the first two. It culminates with, with the longest and most extensive of the stories whose narrative arc perfectly matches the other two, ending with a father celebrating the return of his lost son. Well done, Jesus. Good stories, Who's hungry? What's for lunch, right? <laughs> but then, but then Jesus keeps going. And he adds a part to the third story. And I like to imagine that this is like just as the crowd's kind of starting to relax and take a breath, maybe Jesus himself pauses for just a minute. Then he says, meanwhile, oh, that's not good. <laughs> Uh-oh. Meanwhile, Jesus says, the older son was in the field. 
And you know that moment in TV shows or movies where there's that record scratching moment and it's like something's about to go off the rails or something did go off the rails and now we've got to explain what went off the rails. This is like that record scratching moment of Luke 15. Like maybe, maybe everyone forgot about the older son. And Jesus is like, oh, by the way, meanwhile, let me tell you about this other guy. The older son was out in the field. This is where the story breaks the pattern and, and begins to head into new and unknown territory. And so the crowd now jolts back to attention, wondering what Jesus is going to have this older son do. And this is where it's important for us, I think, to jump back to the beginning of Luke 15 and provide a little bit of context for these stories. See, at the beginning of the chapter, a bunch of tax collectors and sinners had gathered around Jesus. And this was common. Uh, Jesus often found himself in the company of people that other people thought he shouldn't be around. And so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they saw this, and Luke tells us that they muttered, which is a great word. <laughs> they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And I think the term muttered helps us get the contempt of that statement, right? This is, this is not something that a righteous person does. Like if this, guy, if this guy was who he said he was, he wouldn't let those people be hanging around with him. He certainly wouldn't eat with them. You see, the Pharisees are convinced that being surrounded by such nefarious company is humiliating and shameful. In fact, just a few chapters earlier, another sinful woman came up to Jesus at a dinner party and, and just began weeping at his feet. And so she's just like sobbing at Jesus' feet, so tears are getting all over his feet, so she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. All of this is like completely, like social faux pas is being generous to her. This is not something you did like out in public, but she just can't help herself. So she's crying all over Jesus, wiping his feet with her hair. She pours perfume on his feet eventually. And, and again, everyone's just watching this. And once again, it's a Pharisee who sees what's going on. And he says, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So once again, it's the same idea. If he was who he was claiming to be, he wouldn't let someone like that get so close to him. Uh, and so interestingly enough, Jesus actually tells a parable in response to that comment too that we're not gonna get into today, but that's in Luke 7, if you wanna go read that later on on your own. But repeatedly then, we find the Pharisees scoffing at the notion that this Jesus fellow was allowing sinners to get so close because for the Pharisees, associating with those people was a negative reflection on Jesus. And if he knew anything, it would be cause for humiliation. But Jesus says, actually, it's cause for celebration. And so everyone, sinners and tax collectors, Pharisees and teachers of the law, and, and everyone in between, they all listen to these three stories with the Pharisees scoffing from a distance. And just as everyone thinks that this trio of stories has reached its climactic conclusion with a family celebration, Jesus keeps going. Meanwhile, 
The older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Now listen to some of the language that happens here because this is, this is fascinating stuff, I think, that Jesus chooses to tell us. So his father went out. So the dad has now gone out to both brothers. The father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he doesn't call him my brother, he says, when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? Like, no, I'm, I'm out. <laughs> I don't need any of that. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, he puts the language back on him, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now many of us, I think, grew up knowing that story in its entirety as the prodigal son. It was, I'm guessing, literally the only time any of us ever used the word prodigal. <laughs> uh, but in many Bibles now, these stories are, are now titled, if you have your Bible and are looking there, in a lot of Bibles, these stories are titled The Lost Sheep, The Lost Coin, The Lost Son. And I think those are much more fitting titles, in part because they help us connect them to each other and see them kind of as a series of stories. Uh, but also because I think there's a fair bit of irony in that title and in the third story itself. Because I think the, the irony is that at the end, the lost son is not the younger son who left and returned, but the lost son is the older brother who never left to begin with and who was always there. The older brother is the picture of someone who believes he deserves more than his brother because he's the one who's been doing everything right. And no sibling can relate to that, right? <laughs> My sibling's getting more than me and they don't deserve it because they're terrible. That's the story that, that's told here. The older brother, in his mind, has nothing to repent of. And I think... I think that could be an interesting connection back to the first story that Jesus tells because if you remember at the end of the story about the lost sheep, Jesus says there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now there are several ways that you could kind of interpret or read that statement. Maybe he's talking about people who have given their life to Christ or whatever and aren't needing to completely change course in life. Like there's a few different ways you could read that. But, but sort of as we talked about last week, if, if we're gonna read this with curiosity and ask some questions, I think one of the questions that we're sort of prompted to ask here 
is what person doesn't need to repent? Like who is the person that doesn't need to repent? Well, none of us. We're all in need of repentance. In reality, none of us are above or, or beyond repentance. None of us are so righteous that we do not need to repent. So the one who doesn't need to repent is someone like the older brother. Someone who doesn't need to repent is someone who has become so convinced that they do not need to repent because they are living the right way. Because they are righteous because of what they are doing. Because the way they are living their life. Because of their set of beliefs or practices or whatever it might be. And in his own words, the older brother, he says, has never disobeyed his father's orders. He says, look, I've been doing everything right. I've been doing everything the wrong way. My brother's been, been doing everything completely the wrong way. Everything that my brother has done is wrong. And here I am, slaving after you, he says, followed all your orders, and I haven't gotten anything. He, he feels, is entitled to the celebration being thrown for his brother. He's entitled to the fattened calf. And he's completely lost. He's lost because that mindset reveals his lack of understanding regarding his father and his father's stuff. And at the end of the story, he's angry because in his mind, his obedience to his father has never led to the type of celebration he now witnesses being thrown for his younger brother. And I think the most tragic part of the story comes in his dad's words back to him. Like this is, I think, I, I, I picture this moment when the dad goes out to meet his younger son as just pure joy on behalf of the dad. And then as he's talking to his older son, I, I, I picture sort of tears welling up in his eyes. And, and it's almost this complete shift in, in attitude and tone from the father as he looks at his son and says, everything I have is yours. All of this has been at your disposal the whole time. But you've been so focused on, on, on slaving after me and viewing me as a slave and you as, as a worker for me and trying to do everything right that you've, you've missed out on the blessings that everything, that everything I had was open to you the whole time. And I think that is the most tragic part of the story, this, this father trying to tell him that he has blinded himself to the fact that the blessings of the Father were his to enjoy all along. You see, when we start counting sins and, and trying to decide who deserves what based on our ability to follow the rules well enough, we end up cutting ourselves off from, from living a joyful life in the full glory of an overly celebratory God. The older brother sees something being taken away from him and, and given to someone who didn't deserve it as much as he did. But the father says, this is simply an extension of the love and graciousness that has been available to you all along. You've just missed it. So the Pharisees, the Pharisees were convinced that they were entitled to the blessings of the kingdom because they had kept all the rules because they were doing things right. And in turn, their response to sinners being welcomed by Jesus was to scoff and mutter. And the parables that Jesus tells in response contain many potential messages for us. 
They tell us something about the love and the grace of a celebratory God. They have a lot to say to us about forgiveness and and how we should go about showing mercy and forgiveness to others. But the twist that Jesus adds to the third story challenges us, I think, to consider our own understanding of God's grace towards us. Because when we internalize that none of us are beyond repentance, that all of us are in need of God's grace and that God's love creates a banquet table big enough for all of us, we are more able to adopt a kingdom-minded perspective that welcomes, that forgives, that embraces, and that celebrates. Um, I knew a guy several years ago and after knowing his story, it's impossible for me to read that, especially that last story of the, last, the lost son, the same. Uh, because this, this guy that I knew, we'll call him John, John had a brother who served several years in prison. And while his brother was in prison, John took care of the family, did all the work for the family, even took his mom in to live with him and his family. Meanwhile, his brother found Jesus in prison and began leading Bible stories while he was there, Bible studies, telling Bible stories, surely. And after several years in prison, he was granted parole, and he wanted to come back to be with his family. And so at that point, John had a choice to make. How am I going to respond when my brother, who's thrown our lives into disarray in many ways, when my brother comes back home. Well, John liked to barbecue, so John bought a big brisket, smoked it at the house, invited everyone over to the house for a big party, and he and his mom bought a ring and a robe for his brother, and they read that part of the lost son's story over his brother as they ate brisket and as they threw a big party. And John did that in part for his love for his brother. But he also did it because he had an understanding of God's grace towards him. And he understood that he was no more deserving of God's grace than his brother was. So he threw a party. And he welcomed and he embraced. How we respond to the repentance, to the inclusion, and to the newfound freedom of others says something about our understanding of God's grace towards us. So may we be people who are fully aware of our need for God's grace so that we may be humble. People who are fully confident in the extent of God's grace so that we may be hopeful. And people who are fully appreciative of the extravagance of God's grace so that we may celebrate well. Uh, Each Sunday, we we remember Christ around the table in communion. And as we do so, in a way, we celebrate. We celebrate the new life that each of us have in Christ. We celebrate the invitation that is extended to each of us in Christ. And we celebrate God's grace and love and mercy that is most fully on display in his sending his son to live to die and to be resurrected for each of us. And so may we remember that sacrifice as we share in this meal this morning. And may it call us to live with similar grace and love and mercy toward others.
Would you stand and we're gonna pray our prayer of confession together this morning and then we'll share in the communion meal together and have time for reflection um, and uh, prayer and contemplation as we do so. Let's pray. I'll pray the parts in white and together we'll pray the parts in yellow. Father, we confess to each other and to you, our creator, that we fall short of being what we were created to be and what we have committed ourselves to be. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of Christ. We often seek out the easiest paths, paths of least involvement in places where we might be uncomfortable or paths of self-centeredness. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of righteousness. We confess that we have not loved you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Bring us out of darkness, Lord, and into the light of your love. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of light. Forgive us for getting so caught up in the world's trappings and its false messages of hope that we lose sight of the hope of the kingdom, which brings healing and peace to a world in turmoil. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of peace. May we resolve to become more kingdom-minded, to be peacemakers here and now. Amen. Amen.